This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the past five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Have you ever dreamed of walking through a forest full of the sounds and presence of wildlife, with flowers and food sprouting from every level, and cool air flowing through dappled shade? Well, you can make this dream a reality, whether you're looking to go big with a farm-scale production planting or just a tranquil and bountiful food forest in your backyard, I can show you the steps to make it happen. Join me and my co-instructor Jacob Evans on an incredible farm in the coastal mountains of the Mediterranean coast of Spain, and we'll take you through the practical planning and design steps all the way to actually planting during our profitable Syntropic Agroforestry course. Early bird discounts are now available for this five-day learning event from the 13th to the 18th of April. You can sign up today through the link on the website at regenerativeskills.com or through our link tree on Instagram and learn how to leave a delicious living legacy for generations to come. Hey, and welcome back, everybody. Now, today we're going to continue with this focus on the design process for regenerative projects at various different scales. We've already covered small and residential projects with Rob Avis, homesteading projects aiming for self-sufficiency with Drew Grimm, and farm-scale and production-focused projects with Darren Doherty. And today we're going to cap it all off with an intimate look at the most ambitious large-scale projects that aim to transform whole ecosystems while creating a profit for the local community and investors alike. Now, naturally, for this scale of work, I reached out to Neil Spackman. Now, if you're not familiar with Neil from two previous interviews that I did with him on this show... I can tell you that Neil is best known for his work on the Albeda project in Saudi Arabia and is the co-founder of Regenerative Resources. Now back with the Albeda project, he'd been working for nearly a decade in one of the most arid regions in the world in a severely desertified region of Saudi Arabia to regenerate the landscape through permaculture methods, focusing on water harvesting techniques. As a former student of Jeff Lawton, Neil began to work on the project with no prior experience with either permaculture or dryland restoration, but in a remarkably short time, he and his team have completely transformed the way the land both sequesters water and builds topsoil, and has even reached the point where the trees no longer need any water from drip irrigation in a desert that receives only a few centimeters of rainfall a year. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the new projects that he and the team at Regenerative Resources are launching, their ambitious goals of using the most degraded coastal land on the planet to restore mangrove ecosystems, with the aim of establishing agroforestry systems and productive fisheries that is now starting to take shape in a really big way. Neil and I start by talking about the changes and challenges that he and the company have been going through as they've traversed the globe looking for project sites and connecting with communities and researching the feasibility of their projects. From there, we talk about the key differences and considerations when designing projects at this massive scale and how they work to calculate the feasibility out into an uncertain future. We also get into the inevitable finance aspect of large initiatives and the disconnect between the investors and companies that say they want to fund regenerative projects and, of course, all of the projects that are struggling to find funding. 
This conversation strays a lot more than the others in this series from mere design and ecological considerations, but is essential for anyone who has dreamed of creating a bigger impact with a regenerative land-based project, but can't wrap their heads around the daunting task of finding the resources and the support needed to get it off the ground. Now with that said, let's get things started and I'll hand things over to Neil Spackman. So we've had a conversation a couple of times now, and I've been mm -hmm. very keenly following your work through the posts that you put out, Instagram, and the articles that you've been writing. Um, so yeah, so, so you're in Kylie's at the moment, and how long have you been there scoping out the, the project that you're getting started there? Well, I'm not physically in Kylie's, but we've had a couple of people on the ground for the last 12 months Got it. doing some early pre-development stuff. Uh, we're here one earlier of those... in the year, right? We, I was there in the summer. I spent three weeks of July in Cadiz. Got to go uh, check out Madrid for a couple of days as well. Nice. And uh, it's a lovely, it's lovely. I haven't been down that way. Uh, one of the guys that I work closely with who's teaching a Centropic Agroforestry course with me in April is based down mm. in Cadiz and is doing some projects down there. But I haven't been yet. Really? Yeah. We should get in touch with him then. We should. We're doing a lot of uh, tree planting around that area. And I've got one coming up at the beginning of March with one of our climate farmers uh, who's putting mm. in an orchard at his holistically managed grazing operation of 700 hectares in Alentejo in Portugal. Awesome. A lot awesome. of cool work going on in that area. Well, they need it. I mean, the it's desertification affects what? One third of the Iberian Peninsula? Is that? Yep. And especially along the Mediterranean coast is the most at-risk area. Yep. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. We visited. So I went to the Trebuhena National Park, which is a marsh. It's it's it might be the biggest protected marsh in Europe. And just north of that, there's this massive rice growing region. Um, right. I, I mean, they grow more rice in that region of Spain than any other part of Spain. Yeah, there's and, a couple other small ones like up around here. But mm. yeah, you don't get no, a lot I mean, of wetlands along the coast anymore, certainly. Yeah, their production has fallen by 50%. I mean, we, because we, they're out of fresh water. Right. We drove, I drove by hundreds of fallow fields. They're just dirt. Like there's no photosynthesis. There's nothing, it's just yep. exposed baking dirt that used to be rice fields. And they have they they only have enough water to irrigate half of their fields, yeah. and they're right next to the Guadalquivir River, but that river is very salty, um, so they can't irrigate with it. And so we, I mean, there's so much. They've built dikes along the river, so a lot of the marsh has dried up, and there's nothing. It's again bare dirt that nobody can do anything with they don't have the water for it and the river is salty um so there i mean for us there's so much opportunity there along those degraded marshlands and along that river um and so i think you know the scale of opportunity there the fact that it it gets us entry into eu markets um the nascent regeneration movement that you're more, much more connected with than I am, um, but that I'm excited about. I just think 
I think Spain's going to be a great place to be. I agree. Definitely from what I've been seeing, it's starting to pick up steam. There has been a lot of interest even up to government levels. I can't speak for all the rest of the country. Obviously, I'm a little more connected to what's going on in Catalonia, but we do have Mm. contacts with farmers in our network along that area and, of course, in Portugal as well. And I've been communicating a lot with the the savory hub, Alejab, down in that area because that's showing a lot of promise. And, you know, those areas where you kind of have to kickstart photosynthetic processes again, often is best done with animal impact. Yep, uh, even if it means bale grazing up until you get some kind of green matter growing again. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so, okay, let's, let's start to fill in the gap between when we did our last <laughs> interview, because <laughs> we just yeah. made a huge jump right there. And last yeah. time that we spoke, you were giving kind of an overview of how you were starting regenerative resources after yep. transitioning away from the Albeda project. Yep. And let's talk about what has happened since that time. It's been what, 18 months, maybe a year? Something like that, a little over a year, I think. Yeah. You've been traveling like so, crazy, which not many people have been doing this last year. I have, I have traveled a lot during COVID and it's, uh, my wife's quite sick of it. Um, but I think thankfully things are starting to resolve. Um, so we have been living off of an angel investment and getting projects ready. And at the same time, figuring out all sorts of different processes and, and internal to us. Um, there have been some, lots of small pivots on business model and product streams and, and all sorts of things. Um, but we have publicly launched four projects that we are now financing. And we've launched them because now we're confident we'll be able to get them done because we have um, access to the land, we have permits, we have political capital. We have social capital with communities that we're partnering with. Um, and so now it's, it's time to fund these projects and, and lay the stage for expansion into new regions. Um, so Mexico is our probably our densest area right now. And that's on the Baja Peninsula? Of, yeah, we're primarily in Baja. But two and a half years ago, when we started out in Mexico, we, the environmental ministries didn't even want to meet with us. Like they, they didn't even want to have a conversation because we are working with mangroves and mangroves are a protected species, rightfully so, because 30% of the world's mangroves globally have been destroyed in the last 50 years. Um, And so when we go to an environmental ministry and say, hey, we have this mangrove farming system, we want authority to collect, propagate, harvest and process mangrove products. They're like, no way. We don't, why would, they don't even want to talk to us. Right. And so we have been in this long journey of um, developing relationships, finding allies, um, getting into meetings with people who hold purse strings or hold authorization or signing power um, so that we can 
they know enough about what we want to do that they will authorize it. And, and thankfully, we got our first set of permits for Mexico in December. Um, so we started, we started in Mexico in December of 18. Um, and I wasn't even on the team yet. So they started before I, before I was even on the team in December of 18, it took us three years to get our first permits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now we have at the local, regional, state, and federal level, we have folks championing us who see the value of what we want to do, know how to communicate it to the right people, um, and are supportive of what we're, what we're doing. So we have um, signed letters, we have signed authorizations, we have lots of support that we didn't have last time you and I talked. It's fantastic um, to hear. Oh, what do you think has really shifted that? Uh, what has changed in the mentality and the idea that uh, these vital ecosystems can not be of any economic value other than perhaps for, for conservation since you first started that dialogue down there? It's just been education. Hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't disagree with what you just said. Mo any like natural mangrove forest needs to be preserved. Um, what we're doing is agroforestry on landscapes where there's no photosynthesis at all. Mm -hmm. um, we are seeking out the worst landscapes in coastal regions and trying to acquire them. And then we transform those landscapes um, via what we call regenerative seawater agriculture. And so here's a pivot since the last time you and I talked. Uh, RSA is still our primary product, let's say, right? Regenerative seawater agriculture is RSA. Um, and we've been in contact with a number of, of fishing villages, a number of coastal communities where we have developed partnerships and relationships. And about a year ago, in one of these conversations with um, the elders of a fishing village that we, we are now collaborating with very heavily, they asked us if we could do a mangrove restoration project together. Like I, I was not particularly interested in restoration. It, it's not, it was not a key part of our business model, but they said, so here's their situation. Their catch has dropped 90% in the last decade, right? They're used to catching 10 fish, they're catching one. Um, and their entire community is facing collapse because the fishery is so degraded. And in our conversations with them, one of the things that they brought up was we know that we will have a healthier fishery if we bring our mangroves back. So can we do a mangrove restoration project and will you, Regenerative Resources, support that project? And we were like, well, of course. Why, why you know, that's still blue carbon. That still fits into one of our main product streams. We just hadn't considered it. And so when they said, we know how to do this, we just don't have the resources. Can, you, can we do a restoration project together? And we said, yes. Um, so that was the other set of permits that we got in December of 21 is 
we had proposed a, an 8,000 hectare mangrove restoration and seagrass restoration project. And we just got phase one permitted on the first 3,300 hectares. Um, and we have our project manager down there is a local oyster farmer who is, he's actually posting stuff on LinkedIn. It's really, he wasn't on LinkedIn before. And we were like, look, you're going to be on our team. We want you to be, we want people to be able to look you up and see who you are. And he's, he's taken to blogging on LinkedIn about the project they're doing. Very cool. um, he's, he's phenomenal. He, he is a treasure, um, but they've grown. 60,000 mangroves in the Lex in a month, right? Because we got the permits and we have some resources we can dedicate to it. Um, they're, they're out there growing stuff. And so what we've realized and how our narrative has shifted a bit is that our regenerative economic system allows for really fundamental changes to happen where we are partnering with local communities. Um, because more often than not, they're stuck in a poverty degradation trap, right? If it's a fishing village and the fishery is depleted, what generally happens is people start cutting down trees for uh, charcoal production or they they fish illegal species or they, or they poach. I've talked with families that hunt endangered sea turtles because a sea turtle will feed your family for a week. Um, and that's because they're not catching fish anymore. And so people end up in this situation where they have to do very degrading actions in order to make short-term needs met right yeah. in order to yeah. meet short-term yeah. needs but in the long run what that does is it just causes fundamental collapse of the ecology and the community right so the poverty degradation trap and we have seen this pattern in the last 18 months um i've seen it personally in ghana and mexico and um we've been asked to contribute and bangladesh as well We've been asked to consult or, or give advice and realize that it was the exact same pattern in Senegal, in Gambia, in Mozambique, in South Africa, in Spain, um, in Colombia. Like th this is a universal pattern. Yeah. And what I've we've seen realized- everywhere I've traveled to as well. Yeah. Philippines, Guatemala. Yeah, and, and, and so, it's not just a, a poor country problem either, by any means. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. Um, and so what we've realized is that our system provides a backbone that can allow for those areas to rest. Like if we can, if we can build a big enough RSA system where we've done this mangrove, where we've started this mangrove restoration project, if we can build a big enough RSA there, we can give every fisherman a job, every single one, a stable job where they have income, they'll still be working with fish and mangroves, but then we could rest the fishery for five years if we wanted, right? And then the fishery comes back, the fishery rehabilitates, and then you can implement 
new management structures, you can reestablish that fishery as a commons. And then you have a sustainable rehabilitated resource that is going to increase the wealth of the community even further. And so it was the realization that our system in some really key um, biomes actually provides the economic space necessary to allow for the restoration of degraded ecosystems, right? Maybe that's a coral reef. Maybe that's a fishery. Maybe it's a mangrove forest. Maybe it's marshes. Maybe it's seagrasses. But these are all really critical ecosystems that are suffering because of the poverty degradation trap. And we can interrupt that cycle with our RSA system. So now we, I mean, it's on our website that we explicitly do regenerative economic development and ecosystem restoration in tandem. But fundamentally, what we're able to do is disrupt that poverty degradation cycle. And I'm, I'm super excited about that. That wasn't part of our narrative last time you and I talked. No, it really sounds like it's developed into a much more broadly reaching thing. And that at the same time, you've also niched down on this concept of uh, saltwater agroforestry and mangrove yep. systems. Uh, yep. much more than I thought you had a focus on last time we spoke. And there's a lot of things you mentioned there. I'd like to kind of pry into them a little bit more, starting with clarification of the term blue carbon. We hear it a lot mm. these days. It was only recently that I really understood it. Can you break that down and also talk about why you're focusing so much on it? Yeah, blue carbon refers to, in carbon markets, it refers to uh carbon that's been sequestered through ocean-based systems. So kelp forestry would, if you were developing carbon credits off kelp forestry, that would be blue carbon. If you're doing mangroves or seagrasses or marsh, that that's blue carbon. Um, and it's, it's differentiated from other terrestrial carbon credits because there's a recognition that oceans are very different, that they have different kinds of processes. There's a recognition that these ecosystems in some ways are much more efficient and much more powerful when it comes to carbon on a per hectare basis, right? Um, compared to a tropical or a temperate forest, mangroves are in general, they sequester carbon 10 times more carbon and 50 times faster, or I don't mind, don't quote me on the numbers, but it's 10 and 50 and one of them is faster and one of them is more um, based on uh, numbers I've seen in Manga Bay and, and in a literature review. So that's, that's a serious advantage for the folks that are myopically focused just on carbon, blue carbon kind of symbolizes both the ocean, an advantage in efficiency, um, and, and it's also strictly a nature-based solution, right? Right. No one's doing direct air capture, you know, utilizing the ocean somehow. So it's nature-based, ocean-based, and comes with these advantages that uh, other carbon credits don't necessarily have. 
Yeah, and I can see those advantages that you've clearly studied about these clear uh, intervention points that mm. can scale these things more rapidly than in perhaps some of the more conventional ways that have been entertained up until now. And mm. I want to take a look at this from a project planning perspective, because the focus for this month is going to be on uh, the design process and looking mm. at it from a business scale and giving other people the idea of the process that you need to go through in order to figure out if this is going to work and how to actually implement it. And so with that in mind, what, in your opinion, are some of the key differences in working on perhaps smaller land or ocean-based projects and then these large multi-stakeholder projects that look to transform you know, large chunks of ecosystems, if not whole landscapes altogether? Yeah. What, what's the difference yeah. in how much you're taking on and the planning process? Well, generally on small-scale projects tend to be implemented by people that already have the land or communities that are already present. And the, that comes with a certain set of advantages, right? Of being local, already having the land. Um, it, it, the challenge with being small is that the costs are largely the same, right? If you're putting together a deck or a business plan for a hundred acres versus for a thousand or 10,000 acres, you still have to write everything out. It's just the numbers that are different. Um, but it takes you, in general, it takes you the same amount of time. Um, you still have to go through the process of getting permits. You still have to go through the process of fundraising. You still have to put together a business plan and a financial model. Um, you still have to have the capacity to execute on whatever you're putting together. And so, in terms of efficiencies, it's very hard to do a business on a small scale, right? Because you're looking at much smaller revenues, but similar kind of lead time, right? Similar kinds of expenses to make that happen, at least, at least in the pre-development phase. Now, the challenge with large scale stuff is you've got you've to have the credibility and the experience to be able to pull it off. Right. If you if you've never done a large scale project and you say, hey, you know, European Development Bank, I've got a plan to do a 20,000 hectare marsh restoration. If you don't have the credibility to back up that kind of request, then it doesn't matter. Right. So there's there's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing here where if you want to go big, you kind of have to prove you've already gone big, um, at least in some way. So that's, that's the challenge to scale. The advantages to scale is it is just as easy to ask for $100 million as it is to ask for $100,000. It's, it's, it's the exact same process. That's really interesting. Right? Do you have to approach different financing bodies or? Yeah, absolutely. It's okay. very different bodies, right? You're talking to, a different, to different people but there are in, in the fundraising world, right? There are people who are like, okay, we wanna do a $20,000 grant to a local community, right? And then there are people who say, look, if, if you're not, our, our minimum is 30 to 50 million, right? If you're not doing at least 30 to 50 million, we don't even wanna to talk to you because their due diligence process 
whether they're doing due diligence on a million dollar project or a $50 million project is exactly the same. And so they'd much rather do the higher, the bigger projects with the higher tag and the, and the higher returns because then their, their cost per unit, their cost per project in ratio to the revenue or in ratio to the return is a lot lower, right? So if, if I need to send somebody to another country to check out a landscape to make sure this project is legit, I'd much rather go through that expense for a higher return, higher ticket project than a lower one. And so there is this, there is this spectrum of finance where, yeah, there are people that want to do small scale grants for small projects and they have, they have to do their due diligence and the project still has to make sense. And then there are, I talked with a, a, an asset management firm a couple months ago. Um, they said, look, typically we don't write a check smaller than 750 million. You're too, I was trying, I, was, I wanted them to finance one of our projects. And they said to me, you're too small for us. You need to be bigger before we, before we even look at you. That's pretty because wild we, when we're talking about the scale that you're working at is still far beyond what most of the people that I speak to are even intending, right? Or yeah. attempting, yeah. Yeah, and so it, it's, um, but the, the due diligence that you have to do on a 750 million project versus a $10,000 grant, yeah, they're different in the sense that the detail of one, the, but it's, it's a fractal. It's a fractal, okay? The process so is me, almost the same. Yeah, so walk me through the initial steps in assessing the potential of a project and what you're looking for before you go and pitch it to an investor and take all of the steps to, to make that deck. Yeah, um, so I just wrote an article called The Valley of Death. Yeah, that I wanna go through that bit by bit. I've actually got it, some excerpts I wanna talk about. Oh, great, later. great. So. Yeah. This is, this is another thing I've realized in the last 12 months is everybody is going through this. And I've had a number of people reach out and say, I thought we were the only ones. And, and um, so what we're, what we're looking for specifically, we, and the way we work is we acquire degraded coastal landscapes. Well, either we purchase it or we do a long-term lease or we partner with the landholders. We transform that land and then we commercialize the outputs. That, that, in a nutshell, that's what we do. Um, and so we are looking for landscapes where we know our system can be implemented that has proximity to good markets or proximity to a port where we can export things out of. And that has, um, you know, very good property rights, right? Policy that supports uh, land ownership that doesn't have a strong eminent domain history where there isn't the political risk of seizure or nationalization. Um, Right, so there, there's security risk, there's political risk, there's geographic risk, and then there's market risk. And we're trying to mitigate 
those different risks as much as we can. But then, uh, so when you take all that into account, we're looking for the worst land out there. We want the most degraded stuff that is covered in salt, where there is no photosynthesis. It is just dust and it's next to a, an ocean. That's what we're looking for. Um, and then it's, is, can you actually acquire the site, right? Is it publicly owned? Is it federal? Is it privately owned? Is it communally owned? Who are the, and so you've got to find a site, then it's got, is it actually amenable to acquisition, you know, one way or another, right? Then what's the permitting process like? And what's, what's the disposition of the people in power to do this kind of innovative thing? Because what we're, most people have never seen or even thought of what we are doing. They don't even know it's a possibility, right? Most people look at our website and they assume we're desalinating water. Um, every time I present this, they're like, so have you got some proprietary desal technology that you're using for this? I'm like, no, this is untreated ocean water. And, and they still, it blows them away. They're like, wait, what? Because the paradigm is salt is bad. You don't want it on your land. Um, so is the landscape amenable to the system? Whoever has that land, are they amenable to our acquisition of it or to partnering with us? Is the policy in place that it would allow for us to do this? What is the proximity to markets and friendliness to international businesses like ours. So there's, there's a whole rubric of things we have to look at before deciding to try to go for it. And then it's a minimum 18 month process and, and 30 to 36 months is more likely before we can go to an investor where we say, okay, we got the land or the rights to the land We've got the permits or the promise that these permits are going to be expedited. We've got the business model. We've got the financial plan. We've got relationships with local communities. We have a local team that knows how to execute. We've done our due diligence on all the legal stuff. Here's the project. Here's the returns. Here's what you stand to gain. Let's go do it. Right. And then they have to do their due diligence, right? Where they double check our documents. They look into product market fit. They decide if, if they think what we're doing is real and if we can really do it. And then you get the money. And so this is all of what's happening in that 12 to 36 month period before you start to pitch the actual investors. That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. And, and so I can imagine first, that's looked very different set. in these different places that you have started it up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What have been some of the big unexpected wrenches that have been thrown in the, the process in different oh, places? It's, um, we've got one, one of the sites that we are pitching for right now. It's split between 17 different owners. And we had to get all 17 to sign the same agreement before before we knew we'd have access to it. Because any one of those 17 has veto power on the whole deal. Um, that's tough. 
that's that's really hard to do. Um, well, so this is one of those things, like you said, that is not necessarily different for a massive project or a smaller one, because I've come across similar things in small land acquisitions in Guatemala and in the yeah, Philippines. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I'm at fractals. It's fractals. The whole process done. Um, we had one site we were looking at that we thought was really promising. The landowner was super friendly and wanted us there, um, was willing to give us a really good deal on the land. Um, he was willing to go, he was willing to drive the permitting process so that we wouldn't have to worry about it. And so when we, at face value, the landscape looks really good. We did a core sample of the soil and hit a shelf of limestone 12 inches down. Just like impenetrable. Like we, we would need so much heavy machinery to try to build our system there. Like we'd have to, we'd have to crack the shelf, excavate it so that we could dig down to do a constructed wetland. Like it, it, when we looked at the numbers for that, like the capex tripled because of how much work we'd have to do with the science. So we're like, sorry, like we like you, but it can't be done. It can't be done. Um, uh, let's, there are a bunch of failed ones where we started going through it and then stopped. Um, and this is super resource intensive as you're doing all of this information gathering, is. relationship it building. It's, it's very resource intensive. We ha I went to do a consultancy where they were verbally promising us that we'd be, we'd be hired to do, to do the work and we get access to the land. Um, so I, I gave this entity a, a very low consultancy rate on that promise, um, gave them a document and they turned around and, and gave the job to a different company that they had already made an agreement with before they even got us. Like they said, yeah, we'll hire you to do it, but you guys don't know how. So let's have Neil come over and put together the document and then we'll give you guys the job. Right? So there's, there's shifty stuff out there. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's all lessons learned, right? Sure, it's all lessons sure. learned. Um, but it is, it is very resource intensive. And uh, I'm excited to be out of that pre-development phase on our first set of projects because the first ones are the hardest. Right. Once you've got an operating system, like if, if we want to go to India, for instance, we can invite a regional Indian environmental ministry, you know, group, we can bring them to our farm in Mexico and say, here's the before, here's the after, here's the products, come talk with the people we work with. And then they're like, this is phenomenal. Of course, we want you to come to India and do this. But until you have those first projects functioning, you can't do that, right? It's, it's just faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. faith. Everybody's so, looking for the concept to be proved before they're the experiment site that has to, you know, take the risk in seeing if this actually works or not, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. Well, so, so on that note, let's let's dive into this article that you wrote. I want to just take the moment to read off a little section from the beginning where you uh, talk about the first, second, and third points that are kind of causing this paradox, this conflict in between 
yeah. the startup world of getting these projects started and the yeah. opinion of this from the from the finance world so you've written here the first one is that there is immense interest from the financial world in natural or in nature-based solutions to climate change in yep. blue carbon in particular and yep. wide recognition of their potential to solve multiple issues you go on yeah. from there to the second one, saying that there is an, are numerous organizations dedicated to developing bioregionally appropriate land restoration and regeneration projects from the oceans to the top of watersheds. Makes yeah. sense, right? But then this third one is where they, they collide, right? Despite points one and two, there is a dearth of deployed capital and a plethora of projects that are not getting funded. And very few in the financial world understand the difficulties and the requirements for getting these projects going and almost none of the people in the project development world get finance. So there's a lack of communication <laughs> here. Yeah, we don't speak each other's language. We don't Do you see an opportunity there for some sort of intermediary to work on this? Or is it just a matter of both sides getting more educated about the process of the other? I mean, I think more sides getting educated is critical, which is why I wrote the article, because I... I realized that the process we were going through was the same process everybody else is going through. And when I realized that, I was like, well, why, how come no one's talking about it? And I was actually put into a group of other forestry oriented organizations at COP. I went to, I went to Scotland for COP and did a one day event. I didn't do the event, I attended event that was put on by uh, the folks at Terraformation. And all of us had the same problems. We all had, and I was like, wait a minute, everybody's going through this. But not none of us realized that everybody else was going through it. And when I wrote the article, I heard from all sorts of other people, this is exactly what we are going through. So I was like, okay, this is, this is an industry-wide problem, right? It's not specific to us. It's not because I suck at finance. It's not because our business model is wrong. It's because industry-wide, this is the pattern. Um, and then I've also been privy to a couple conversations with people that come from the financial world who are like, we can't find projects to fund. I've heard that too. Yeah. You know, we, we can't, we can't find them. And I'm like, well, and so I put it together. I was like, this is why we can't find projects to fund and why projects can't find finance is because there's this key stage in the beginning where no one's willing to put money in, but every project needs to get going. So is there an opportunity there? Probably, but I am not a finance guru. And I like, I don't know enough about that world to be like, here's the innovation and the opportunity that we need that solves this problem. It's a huge problem. Um, but I'm, I'm coming at it from my perspective, which is very much the project developer. Yeah. So uh, can you break down this Valley of Death concept? Uh, maybe summarize a little bit from the article so that people can catch up with us. Yeah, so all those things that I just told you about that we do before we can talk to an investor. And, and the reason you don't you can't talk to an investor is because if you don't have access to the land, 
permits, a business model, a financial plan, and a team that can execute. No investor will look at you and say, yeah, this is an investable project. They'll say it's too risky. It's not proven yet. Uh, so no, we're not willing to put our money in because we think there's a high chance that we're just going to lose our money. Right? So you have to get a project to the point that it is de-risked enough for an investor to bite. Right? Well, and, and, and I don't mean like in the sense that we're fishing and, and trying to catch somebody. I mean, there has to be enough confidence and enough security that everybody knows this is going to be a good deal. You're going to make, you know, what, whatever your parameters are for your investment, right? Whether that's a 10% impact IRR or a, you know, a 15 to 20% thing for, for a more standard commercial operation. Um, they have to be confident that they're going to make their money back, right? Or not make, not just make their money back, that they're going to make money on the deal. Um, and to get to charity. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 exactly. And to get a project to that point, in my experience, takes two years, maybe three years of hard work with a professional team um, with a lot, you know, a hundred different ways that all sorts of things can go wrong. And very few people are willing to fund that pre-development phase. Um, again, because what's, what's the risk on it? And this is very similar to how um, infrastructure companies operate. It's very similar to infrastructure, to the infrastructure industry. And I understand that there are some innovations that the infrastructure industry has done to ameliorate this but I don't know enough about what those tools and instruments are that they've put into place. Uh, but that's, that's the valley of death. You've got to get through that process and you've got to eat, right? You've got to have some kind of income and almost nobody has those kinds of resources up front and people in general aren't willing to give you those resources up front, right? A philanthropist, a lot of people are like, well, go to a philan get philanthropic capital, catalytic philanthropic capital is, is kind of the buzzword. But in general, philanthropists, they want to see impact on their money, right? They want to say, what, what is the difference that you've made? And, and if you go and say, well, here's the difference you're going to make. We're going to have permits, right? We're going to have access to a land. They're like, well, I'd much rather fund something that is actually changing people's lives, right? Or making the kind of difference I want to make rather than I'm going to fund you to go get permits and find land access and build. So you a can then go get money from someone else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So philanthropists want to see impact. Right. So they're not interested in pre-development phases in general and investors want security and, and de-risked projects so that they can be confident they're going to get a return. So the only way you get a project going is either you've got a huge amount of resources of your own that you're willing to put in, right? So you've, you've already got to be wealthy and have the kinds of resources, or you need to convince someone to take a risk on you. And that, that, that's us. We got an angel investment 
12 months in to the pre-development phase, right? We worked for 12 months out of pocket. I lived on the dregs of my student loans um, and a loan from friends and family. And my partners did similar kinds of things. And we worked for a year with no income and no promise that we would succeed. 12 months into it, we got an angel investment from a really lovely group of folks who um, are aligned ethically, believe in what we're gonna do. But it was actually, my understanding is it wasn't until I released my video about El Beda that they really felt like we could pull this off. That makes sense. The result of that project is really eye-opening and I'm sure has brought a lot of attention, especially to the concepts that you're now trying out through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that, but we have credibility because we've pulled off impossible things before, right? That, that, that's why the angel is like, okay, I see that you have done this. I have faith that you can pull this off. I'm willing to put in an angel investment. And that the purpose of that angel investment was to get us to the point where we could finance the project, which is where we are now. Well, maybe say a little bit about the angel investing process, because that's kind of the one that I don't think people bank on. And for good reason, it's a little bit of a lottery. I mean, obviously, it is. It's, it's, yeah, a, it is. it's an application and you do have to show something of merit, but it is a bit of a lottery. What was yeah. that process like for you? And is it something that you think other ambitious projects could start to count on? Or is it just no. so random that no, I mean, you try for it, but you can't rely on it? I, again, I'm in a unique position because I've got El Beda behind me. Sure. Right. And my partners did the Greening the Eritrea project. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Not as closely, um, but I've heard of it. So if, if, you go, if you look up Greening Eritrea on YouTube, that's a project my, part, my co-founders did. And, uh, and it's phenomenal what they did. It's, it, that was the first commercial iteration of the seawater system we are deploying now. And so we have that, we have that stuff behind us. We have experience, we have credibility and we, we have a proven team. But Albeda and Eritrea are very unique. Um, and I think that's why we were able to get an, so no, I wouldn't say that, you know, this is the path, go find an angel. I don't think that's gonna work for everybody. Um, I, and I, frankly, I don't know what the solution is for everybody. I. I do understand that that article I wrote has been passed around at places like UNDP and the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration Team. They, they wrote me and said, hey, we just wanna thank you for writing this. We discussed it in our leadership team and are thinking through the implications of this. Hmm. I had a couple investors write me and they said, this is so important for me to understand. Thank you for writing this. Um, I, I don't know where the solutions will come from, but it's an industry-wide problem. And people who are smarter than me on, on financial tools and instruments, hopefully will come up with something. Mm -hmm. 
but I know I don't think the path we've taken is a path that can be easily trod. Let's sure, say. sure. Well, then, in that case, let's shift gears a little bit here, and I'm curious where you see some of the biggest opportunities for regeneration-based businesses at the moment. Obviously, you've really gone in full on, uh, well, these brackish water uh, mangrove yep. type systems because yep. of the potential of building something out of essentially nothing. Like you were saying earlier, you look for the most degraded sites that have no further potential, not realistically. That's and right. the turnaround is massive. But That's have it. you seen other project concepts or are you starting to look into others that also show a lot of promise in this area? I think... I think there's a lot of space in oceans. Um, seaweed, kelp, mariculture, all have some really intriguing things. And and have you had Brian von Hertzen on? Yeah, I was going to say I've I've had him and I've had Yust uh, Wilders uh, from from the Netherlands as well. The seaweed. Got company. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're doing really cool stuff. Um, I think. It's going to vary place to place, but here's kind of how I think of it in terms of uh, categories. You've got novelty product businesses. So for instance, I would really love to do Baobab agroforestry. Oh, like yeah. if, if I, if, if regenerative resources already had 5 million hectares of coastal lands under management, right? And that was all set up. I would go do baobab agroforestry in the Sahel mm. um, or even in East Africa. Baobab is being cut down because people locally don't recognize the value that it's got, but I would do like a baobab energy drink. Wow. And sell I it, in it as medicine when I was in Senegal and yeah. I went to one of the the preserves in the parks there, I mean, they're incredible trees. They they're are incredible very, trees. Very, very memorable. If you've ever seen one, it doesn't look like hardly any other tree you've seen. Yeah. And a, a company that's taken this route that might be a decent analogy is Cooley Cooley. Okay. Um, all they do is Moringa, right? Yeah. They partner with farmers in Africa to grow Moringa, and then they're selling it in the U.S. and Europe. But I, I would do a Baobab energy drink right get get some famous african footballers to support it start selling it in europe and the us um and that supports your baobab agroforestry um so there's Wait, like the novelty product kind of question here yeah are baobabs feasible further into the interior of the sahel because where i saw them they were always on really calcium rich deposits in soils closer to the coast no, I mean, they're, I know they're in northern Ghana. They're in northern Cote d'Ivoire. They're in northern, I know they're in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the full range is. Okay. And there are multiple species. But you could do six different products off of Baobab. And if you're going to, right? Because you've got the seeds, you've got the bark, you've got, um, I, I, again, I know the I'm, not, the I'm not an expert yeah. on it. But um, no, the leaves are also really good fodder. Really? Um, I, uh, you know what? Don't quote me on that. I might be confusing <laughs> it with another African tree that I'm kind of in love with. But 
there's the novelty product business, right? Take an, an unknown or an underappreciated species of thing that can anchor a regenerative system, right? Build the product, go out and sell it. And you've got, you know, it's, that's I mean, if, if cash crop that can support side industries yeah, and the health yeah, of, exactly. a, of a sub ecosystem underneath it. Exactly. I mean, think, think of like a five hour energy, right? Which is a multi-billion dollar business. Yeah. What if that had, what if that had Baobab in it? Right? Yeah. Um, so there's that category. Then there's the process businesses, right? Where they're working with farmers to integrate regenerative systems on their land. Um, and the, some of this is for profit and some of it is nonprofit, but um, I'm thinking about Propagate Ventures, for instance, yep. in the US, right? They're helping farmers integrate trees into their farms and have a, I understand a decent business of it. Um, then there's the kind of more asset-based side, which is kind of like us. Um, a real fundamental part of our, it's, it's kind of the Ray Kroc McDonald's quote, right? Where people told Ray Kroc that he was in the burger business and he was like, no, I'm in the real estate business, right? For us, a big part of what we're doing is we are acquiring land that is essentially a drastically undervalued asset. Mm -hmm. And through the implementation of our systems, we are revealing what the real value of that asset is. And in the process, you know, five to 20 Xing the value of the real estate. Actually, so this I'd love to get your opinion on because with this reevaluation of the potential of degraded land, I'm seeing also a real risk of it becoming another investment commodity that drives oh, the yeah. prices way up and makes it impossible for anybody who's actually going to do something with it and restore it entrance into access to it at all. Same way real estate has done around cities and suburbs. I mean, if, if that happens, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on, on one hand, it will mean that the kind of business I'm doing is so well-established and so well-recognized that it just becomes an assumption. Hmm. Right? Like putting if that an happens, lock on an, an urban land, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it becomes, if it does become a commodity in that sense, it means we have commodified the restoration of ecological function. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, on one hand, it sounds gross. You know, but if like that's a what it takes to actually do the work. And on the other these? hand, yeah, it, it will mean millions of hectares of land will have gone through this process so much that it's just a recognized standard thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I, I see there's a real positive if that happens. Um, and there's there's a downside to it as well. Yeah. So the, but I do I do think there's real opportunity there. Find the degraded land that no one else sees value in, build a regenerative system that's scalable to that kind of biosphere. And then you have a scalable business applicable to lots of land um, 
and a very compelling investment case because you're talking about real assets. So there's, and then there's, so that's a category. I would call that the, was that the third category of regenerative business? The first was the novelty product that anchors yeah, a regenerative yeah. system. The second was working with farmers a la Propagate Ventures to transform existing farms into more regenerative ones. Then there's ours, which is the asset-based. And then the fourth I would say is enabling tech, hmm. right? Tech that somehow enables uh, the transformation or the verification or the marketing or the commercialization of these systems that are being put into place. It's really like I haven't heard it broken down in those four categories before. And it just makes me think of, you know, my work with climate farmers now. So mm. we are in both two and four by your categorization. So the tech side is creating the algorithms and the verification process to use satellite imagery in order to verify carbon captured and also a whole yeah. range of other ecosystem services so that it can't be anchored solely to carbon and otherwise manipulated, but it has to include like real regeneration aspects. And then mm. I'm more closely working with the community and the academy side where we're facilitating the transition of conventional uh, agronom or agriculturalists to regenerative practices. And right now we're a nonprofit uh, model, but we're also looking at business possibilities here uh, in helping yep. large agro food businesses like uh, Danone or Nestle or whoever you know, may come to us and do it on a contract basis to help them move their whole suite of land assets and farmers within that on mass and, and be able to scale it up. Yeah, and that would actually be my fifth category. Okay. Is the revamping supply chains. Gotcha. Right, the Danone, the Unilevers, the Nestle's, the, the I don't know all of them. Ostensibly, a lot of them are subsidiary they, those two. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's like 80% of, of the entire world's exactly. agribusiness, exactly. right? But ostensibly, there's need for them to source regeneratively grown ingredients. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a whole, like, so, and then, so what and would like you said, that, that? Whole, that whole chain along the way or web? Yeah, there, a lot more complex. So that's like the feeding the beast category yeah. is... The transportation, trying, the processing, the yeah, the all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, and when I think of that, I think of what are they called? Felipe Villela's group is called. Why can't I Renature? Oh yeah, Renature. Group called Renature by uh, that Felipe with them as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So. I know Felipe He's from social media, but we've never met. Um, but I think I, I put re-nature in that category. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting to see what concepts are popping up because there's a lot of startups emerging in each of these levels that you're talking about. And we just mm. talked about a couple of them that are in the different categories, kind of to give an example if people want to follow up and see some of the, the standout ones. But uh, it... it there's, there's room for a ton of innovation in all of these. There is. Right now. Yeah. There is. And there's a real uh, need for it. I don't know. I mean, you know, we're talking about all the difficulties of getting finance for these types of startups. But at the same time, 
I mean, for countries to start to meet their uh, Paris Agreement metrics and their decarbonization yep. of their entire system, they're starting yep. to pour a ton of money in here. And like you said, while this disconnect exists, hopefully it gets solved soon because, you know, there is a real push for it for the first time, I'm sure, since you and I have started working in any of this. And I've been hearing it from people who have been in it far longer than we have as well. Yeah. Well, and I think in some of those categories, it's going to be easier to get started than others. I'm sure. Right. The tech side doesn't tend to struggle to find finance. No, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I have, I have mixed feelings about it. Like on one hand, there's value there. And on the other hand, like there's a part of me that's just like, look, tech is not going to solve climate. I'm so tired of climate tech and hearing from climate tech investors <laughs> and seeing, more, you know, another climate yes. tech company getting launched. I'm like, okay. Oh, Yes, it's it's necessary, but we really just need to bring nature back. We yeah. need more for us. It does seem we like need, a very indirect. We need to heal the earth. Way. Yeah, and and so it's. I uh, I have a love hate relationship with with the I hear <laughs> climate tech world, um, and yeah. some people look at us and say, "Oh, the, oh, regenerative resources is climate tech," and mm. it's, and sometimes I'm like tempted to market ourselves that way like to mm. say like to say yes we there's no question we integrate a lot of tech into our systems yeah and those categories I, are not entirely separated there's a lot of no, they're, interchanging they're and kind of yeah blurred lines in between how they operate yeah out of necessity well and they're not mutually exclusive in any sense right uh, well, kind of like climate farmers, like I said, is mostly playing in both two and four by your definitions there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it's funny. I hadn't, I don't think I had come up with these five categories before this conversation either. <laughs> you um, heard it here first, folks. That's right. That's right. This is, this is how I think of it, though. No, it was well articulated. I've seen those patterns that you mentioned and, you know, different springs of ideas and startups coming up in each, each realm. I yeah. kind of tend to focus on a few of them other than, or more than others. Like my own personal interests bring me towards like the first three, not so much the tech, just because that's what I'm into. But uh, yeah, the other ones make a lot of noise too. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so look, there's one other thing that I'd really like to get your opinion on before we start to wrap up, uh, and that's the primary skills that are needed to start to enact and scale these types of projects. Because so far, we've been talking about the process and the roadblocks and the hurdles to start to get the financing needed and to, to get them implemented. But you had talked uh, very briefly about the team that you've assembled and the skill set necessary to to inspire confidence in the investors, you know, to have a bit of a resume and some experience behind you, but also yeah. that there's some differences between what you learned in the Alberta project in greening uh, Eritrea and where do you see the overlap, the common skill sets that really have been effective in this process and others that either you have or, or you wish you had that might make this easier or grease the wheels? Yeah, I think... Project management is the one that immediately comes to mind because mm. the process of doing a project, whether it's 
construction or infrastructure or forestry or um, a new marketing campaign. Like there, there are similarities in process across all those things. So I think, I think uh, having a PMP on board is really great. PM, PMP is project management professional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this stuff is uh, at least when we're back into the regenerative ag world, right? Farmers have some of the hardest jobs on the planet because they have to be a businessman. They have to understand land and seasonality and growing. Um, but they've also got to do, especially for folks in the regenerative world where, that tend to be successful when they go direct to consumer. Um, yeah. That's marketing and building a community and processing and packaging. And fundamentally what that comes down to is managing people, right? And understanding so for instance, them, especially in the marketing uh, side. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, and so that, and then accounting, right? Very much so. Financial Making sure you're in the blank in financial management. So in our RSA system, and I'll talk about Mexico, they, they're all variations on a theme in the places where we're going right now. But in Mexico, we're going to have at least six major production systems that are choreographed to form a cohesive whole, right? So there's the aquaculture where we're doing, we'll be doing primarily shrimp um, and we might do some fin fish as well. And I'm not an aquaculturalist, right? I've never run a shrimp farm in my life. And then there is the uh, mangrove coppice system, the halophytic alley cropping system. And then there's the constructed wetland and, pr- and production within that. And in the wetland, we can do sea cucumbers, crab, lobster, microalgae, uh, bivalves. Um, and all of them, except for the aquacultures, are sequestering carbon and providing ecological services. And we have to collect data on that and um, use that data to create ways to monetize ecosystem services. So there's at least a, you know, six different major programs within this thing. And I, I'm, I could be considered an expert on probably the alley cropping, right? Cause I've set up alley cropping systems before. Nobody's an expert on, on the coppice. Nobody has, I have looked for years now for indigenous mangrove coppice systems. And I don't think it exists. Um, I think we're creating it. And so they grow so no, back well from coppice? Is that the idea? Yes. But they haven't there been are, that way historically. They haven't been. I can I've find, done a ton of research on coppice systems, but yeah, not mangroves. And it's just because there's I no can example find of it? no evidence of indigenous mangrove coppice systems. Wow. Um, it's in the literature that there are particular species that coppice very well, but I cannot find a single 
precedent for a managed mangrove coppice where people are growing the trees in a particular way, harvesting on a particular cycle. It, it, it's not there. And I've talked to mangrove ecologists who are academics in like history of mangroves. And they're like, nope, we've never heard of this. That's really so exciting. No one's, I mean, it's no one's an expert it's really in that. It's super exciting. Yeah. No one on the planet is an expert in it. Um, we're pioneering that system. Um, but the point is, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do the bulk of that stuff. I know how to design it so that it fits together. I know how to go out and get finance. And my team knows how to go out and get permits. We know how to evaluate a site. But Antonio and Jesus, who are, um, they have a collective 55 years in shrimp aquaculture between the two of them. They're gonna be our shrimp guys, right? Um, Panacea is an organization in Panama that's partnering with us on sea cucumber production, right? So they're gonna train our people in sea cucumbers. Um, David is an oyster farmer who has been growing oysters for 20 years and he's gonna be our oyster expert. So it's, it's not that I have to understand the whole system. I have to choreograph it and find the right people and be able to put this together in such a way that you know, when you when you look at the whole chessboard, we're we're checkmating all of our objectives every time, right? And so it's 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 not that I'm necessarily an expert farmer or an expert aquaculturalist, but I know regenerative systems and I know how to put this stuff together and I know how to lead people. Um, and then it's about finding the pieces and the expertise you need, preferably locally, as local as possible to be able to build this stuff and make it happen. And where did you start to build this skill set? How did you learn to be uh, the conductor of such a dynamic orchestra? Is it something that people can learn that they can go and get involved with projects and conceivably get that level of experience and confidence? Or do you feel like there are certain aspects that you just need a, an inherent level of talent in order to be able to do this? I don't, I don't know if it's inherent. Um... I made a million mistakes in El Bela, right? El Bela was eight and a half years. I was dropped in the middle of the Saudi desert with, with a budget and the backing of a Saudi princess, which, which should not be um, understated how important that was, right? We already had funding. We already had political capital and we had serious backers who could make things happen for us when it needed to happen, right? So. Permitting was not an issue. Land access was not an issue. And we already had funds, right? So when I joined Albay, the pre-development phase was pretty much done, right? We didn't have to go through the valley of death. It was taken care of, right? And then it was just execution. Um, and I made a million mistakes at Albeda because um, we were prototyping. And that's, that's what happens when you're prototyping, right? But um, I learned a huge amount there about managing people, about leadership, about setting these kinds of things up. Um, and then I went and studied management at Stanford um, and learned a great deal there as well. I mean, 
that was an expensive year, but it has prevented me from making some really big errors in the last three years. Um, so it, it can be studied, but, and then I think you, you learn by experience. Yeah. Yeah. And you have really put a lot of focus on an element that I think is constantly understated and that is community connection. And actually right after this series that we're doing on project planning and design, I'm going to focus on that community element. Uh, hmm. What would you like to say about that and, and how you go about initiating the communications, the contact and, and the time and effort that it takes to getting a, a community on board, but also adapting yeah. what your agenda is that it fits what they want rather than trying to force some sort of project on them. It's essential. Um, it is essential to building long-term success. Right, and we, the systems we are building are systems that, you know, ceteris paribus could still be functioning a thousand years from now. And you don't get that, you don't get to that thousand years without building something local, right? This is not an imposed thing and it can't be. Um, it's more cost upfront with much higher upside because you have David, right? David is our oyster expert who's leading our mangrove restoration project um, in Delgadito right now in, on the Pacific coast of Baja. David has a high school diploma he has been an oyster farmer for, I think, two decades. It might, it might be 15 years or 14, but that's what he's been doing. And in his spare time, he has spent thousands and thousands of hours experimenting with mangroves, growing mangroves locally. He and his wife have planted over 200,000 mangroves in their spare time because they think it's the right thing to do, right? This guy is a humble, heroic person who we discovered through the process of engaging with the local community, right? He is, he is the source of indigenous knowledge on mangroves in this area. He, he gets asked to consult on mangrove projects in the rest of Mexico, um, but he doesn't have a website. Right, you can't you can't find him online and call him up, because um, that's not how he works. And uh, we've known David for over a year. He is very protective of his community, and so he's quite suspicious. But he also, in some of our town halls and some of our early conversations with local leaders and local politicians. You know, people kept saying, oh, you should go talk to David, right? We got pointed to him. And when we met him, and as we got to know each other, we recognized that we were totally aligned. And so now we have a project manager who knows everybody locally, who is very well respected, who is the source of indigenous knowledge about mangroves in this lagoon. Um, and it's, it's, it's our project. And when I mean our, it's, it's his and it's regenerative resources, right? He has joined our team uh, 
but we're following his lead on this stuff because he's he's the one who knows he knows better than anybody else on the planet and so what that means for us is we have the guy who knows more about mangroves in this area than anyone else on the planet as our project manager that's awesome right that's better than bringing in an academic from you know university of pennsylvania who studied mangroves in myanmar you know they may have the academic expertise but this guy has the indigenous knowledge and he's our pm you don't get that without community engagement and so what all the benefits that come along with that is this isn't seen as a project belonging to the gringos who are bringing you know jobs but who knows what they're going to do it's not it's it's david's project right so all of the potential enmity and suspicion that comes when a multinational corporation shows up in a rural area in a foreign country right which is extremely justified right Very that suspicion so. is justified and and should be expected but this is david's project they know david right he's married to their cousin so the the enmity and the suspicion the the fear of the other is very much ameliorated it's not gone but it is ameliorated a great deal um local knowledge is worth more than diamonds it is extremely valuable and you cannot magnify it you cannot access it you cannot put it into practice without trust and a relationship with local people yeah, and I've got a ton of stories like that on a much smaller scale from Aziz, who was our fixer and helped to make pretty much everything happen for the natural building projects down in Senegal. And yeah. he was the one who, in his spare time after learning with us on our workshop, went and put an extension on his house in Cobb because he believed in it. And that's really what started to change people's minds in the area because he was so well yeah. respected. To, yeah. yeah, similar stories of people in in Guatemala and all these other places that we're talking about, like, and now working with uh, a few clients in with climate farmers or farmers in different areas, there's people who have been there their entire lives, who are already well connected with the community and have that going with them. But the few that I'm working with who are transplants, they come from either another part of Europe, or some other country and have bought land in a new place. It's very common around here in Spain, as I'm sure you know, mm. um, that is the main thing that I have advised them to do is put your initial time, if you're, if you're sparse on money, put your investment and your time in making connections locally. And the people who have done that have jumped far ahead. You know, like maybe, okay, they haven't gotten as much work done on the ground or planted as many trees or you know whatever. But I can see that they're gonna go so much farther in the long run for having yep. that local support. Yep. And not butting heads with everything that's gonna happen when you try and make things happen at a local level, especially in these small towns, like so many things happen by connection, by oh, reputation. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's it's something that I just can't stress enough. And, and I love hearing you talk about it to see, like you were talking about these fractals. It works the same at these larger scales as well. In fact, it's probably even more essential. It, well, it's, you cannot succeed without it. Not really, right? You You might, 
and, and I'm thinking, I'm putting on my NGO hat here. I'm not in an NGO anymore, but you know, you can show up and, and build clean toilets and that's going to help, or you can show up and drill a well. Um, and all of those things make a difference, right? They, the differences might be marginal, they might be significant, but we're talking about creating new indigenous patterns, right? And growing forests that are going to last forever. And fundamentally healing earth and you can't you can't do it without the people who are inevitably going to be the stewards of these landscapes yeah that's right? very well they're, they're the stewards they're the stewards and we it's it's our job to you know come up with solutions together we have a very powerful set of solutions but they can't be imposed they have to be integrated they have to, and we have to understand context, right? Or else you miss things that are really important that later on come back to, to hurt you. Um, you can't do it without them. Yeah. And it's, and, and why would you want to? Why would you want to do it without them? Like the, the experience is so much better with them. It's true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, look, Neil, I think that's a good place to put a little earmark in it for the next time we chat. Um, I will definitely put the link to that article so people can read it all the way through on the Valley of Death in the show notes for this, this episode. Where else can they find you and how can they get in contact and learn more about your projects? So we, our website's regenerativeresources.co. Um, I write a very irregular newsletter for people who sign up um right now it's monthly ish um you can write me at nspackman at regenerativeresources.co although i don't promise that i'll get back to you we are absolutely swamped right now um and i am trying to write Somewhat regularly, I'm averaging a blog post every two weeks. That's on Medium. Uh, and uh, that, that should do it. Nice. Well, that look, I, in our next conversation, I really want to dive into the actual plans for these marsh systems and the mangroves because there's so much to talk about with the ecology there and the potential for the mm. output and you know mm. the, the transformation process, what you're looking at in timescales what kind of uh, resources are involved in getting it kick-started. But, you know, we'll leave it for there for now. And I think there'll be a good opportunity later in this season. Sounds Thanks so good. much for taking the time, Neil. It's always great to catch up with you. All my Thanks, best. Oliver. Take care. Thanks once again to Neil Spackman. I'll be posting all of the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com, where you can also find all of the episodes from the previous five seasons all for free. Before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. And if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. 
Now in the upcoming weeks, I'll be starting a new series to unpack the complicated but essential element of connection and collaboration with the communities that our projects involve. I've already got some incredible sessions with David Holmgren, the co-founder of Permaculture, and Charles Marone, the author of Strong Towns. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from so you never miss an episode. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. 